I'm going to go out and maybe shoot off some fireworks, live dangerously. I remember whenever I was a kid, I loved that. I loved lighting the fireworks myself or all the kids' gun now. And we would do all the stuff you weren't supposed to do with them. Like what, if it said don't do it on the package, we're like, we'll try that. You know, that might be cool because that's how, you know. And, and now as a parent, I'm like, I'm like, put the sparkler down. Put the sparkler down. And that's what happens to us. We kind of grow up a little bit and get, get a little more nervous about things. But, but, you know, we're going to have all this fun stuff. And I don't know if you're going to a family barbecue today. I'm going to a family barbecue right after this. It'll be really cool. And then we're going to go out tonight for the big fireworks display. And we're going to watch this stuff, you know, kind of go up. And, and one of the things, and I talked about this last year, I'm pretty sure. I, I talk about it probably every year. I'm always amazed when we're watching the fireworks display. There's kind of two ways you can experience Fourth of July. And one way is kind of disconnected from what it's about. I mean, it can become about barbecues. It can become about all the other stuff. Even the American flags that we see everywhere ubiquitously. It can become like this other thing. The fireworks in the air. All oh, those are pretty. I mean, we make like smiley faces now with the fireworks and stuff, right? But I'm always humbled and amazed when I'm watching a fireworks display, especially a good one, and I'm close. Because I realize that, that this really is symbolic of, of a pretty scary time in the lives of our soldiers. I mean, whenever, whenever we think about why we shoot off these loud, you know, boom, 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 and the boom, and it's cool because we make it for entertainment, but the truth is that it's reminding us of, of rockets, right? Red flare, and the bombs that bursting in the air, right? We, we know about these things. And, and so when I'm watching, I'm always caught up. I'm like right in the middle of it. I'm just, it's so cool. And then all of a sudden, the display speaks to me about what I've forgotten about this day. It bears witness to experiences that others have where they're not sitting back, you know, with a cold beverage on the lawn with their kids around them and going, ooh, ah. But they're more got their helmets on and they're in the trench next to their buddy and they're going, keep your head down. You know what I mean? And I get really kind of caught up in that moment. I don't know if you do. And, and, and there's other times too where you take a, a second look at something and you just think, wow, like today is the 4th of July. It's our Independence Day as a nation. And we can so easily forget that. And so today I want to start a little different. Um, it's going to all, you know, it's, it's all about the Word of God. And so we're not doing anything, you know, untoward here. But um, I want to kind of think about what this means, this testifying today, the 4th of July, what it's going to speak to. And, and one of the things that I started thinking about right away, and I've been singing it. By the way, if you, if you all, I hope when you come here you can worship freely, you know, uh, I, I sometimes find myself sort of worshiping freely, but, but, you know, there's times like when by myself I really, really worship, and if you're around, you'd probably be really embarrassed by me. And, and this week, it was funny because as I was preparing and I was praying over this, this, the text this week and what we're going to share, because it's kind of the next segment of, of 1 John, the, the song that I kept thinking of with the 4th of July was the Star Spangled Banner. And I actually thought about singing it for you today. And I thought, they'll never come back on the 4th of July. No, I'm not going to do it. It's terrible. I've actually read some stuff about the, four, uh, the Star Spangled Banner. I didn't know. It's one of the hardest songs to sing well because it's one and a half octaves. I didn't know that. I just knew I couldn't sing it, <laughs> right? And um, there's been some people advocating for it to be rewritten in original key, but, you know, it's not happening. So here's the thing. I was thinking about the Star Spangled Banner, and I've been singing it in kind of my private worship time all week. What do these words mean? What is this about, this birthing of a new nation? And so I want to share a little bit about it, and then I want, I want us, we're going to experience it together. I'm not going to sing it to you, though, the Star Spangled Banner today. But I, I want to read a little bit here. Many of you know who wrote the Star Spangled Banner. Do you guys know who wrote it? 
Yeah, thank you. Francis Scott Key, honor student in the back, probably, probably said that. Um, it was on September 3rd, 1814. This is all from Wikipedia. Thank God for Wikipedia, right? Um, listen what happened. Francis Scott Key and John Stuart Skinner set sail from Baltimore aboard a ship, HMS Minden, flying a flag of truce on a mission approved by President James Madison. Now, I got to tell you, when I first read that, I thought they're flying a flag, flag of truce. What? Well, we're Americans. We don't fly any flag with the old glory. You know, that's what I was thinking. And then I read that it was approved by the president. I thought, well, maybe it was okay that they did that. Their objective was to secure an exchange of prisoners. This is really important, interesting to me. One of whom was Dr. William Beans, an elderly and popular town physician of Upper Marlboro, and a friend of Keyes who had been captured in his home. So he was taken captive by the British. Beans was accused of aiding the arrest of British soldiers. And so Key and Skinner boarded the British flagship HMS Tonnet on September 7th and spoke with Major General Robert Ross and then Vice Admiral, this is starting to sound like school, isn't it? Vice Admiral Alexander Cochran over dinner. Now listen to what it says. While the two officers were discussing war plans at the table, these two Americans were sitting with them, negotiating for the prisoners. At first, they refused to release the prisoner, but they relented after they showed letters written by wounded British soldiers praising Beans and other Americans and how well they're being treated while they were in captivity. And so they get what they want. But here's what happens. Because Key and Skinner had heard details of the plans for the attack on Baltimore, they were held captive until after the battle. They were first held aboard the HMS Surprise and later the HMS Minden again. After the bombardment, British gunboats attempted to slip past the fort and effect a landing in a cove, but they were turned away from Fort Covington, the very last line of defense. And, and here's the experience. During the rainy night, Key had witnessed the bombardment and observed the fort's smaller storm flag continuing to fly, but once the shell and the rocket barrages stopped, he could no longer see the flag and had to wait until morning. By then, the storm flag had been lowered and a larger flag had been raised. And he was inspired by this American victory because in the morning, as the dawn broke, he saw the sight of this large American flag still flying triumphantly above this fort. The flag with 15 stars and 15 stripes came to be known as the Star-Spangled Banner flag. And it's today on display at, uh, in Washington. And aboard the ship the next day, he wrote a poem on the back of a letter and kept it in his pocket. And the, the, the poem was called The Defense of Fort Henry, McHenry. But what really amazed me was, we sing it now from this side, but I really thought how amazing that this person experienced this war from the enemy's ship. I mean, how interesting that they experienced this, this battle from a side they couldn't fight from. They were being held in captivity. And maybe you knew that story, and I think I've probably been told that story a few times, but it really hit me that all they could do is wait that all Francis Scott Key could do is wait and see if the battle was won or not. And I bet it was a long, long night. And so with that being said, and this is a song that we all know, but I want you to hear it maybe with new ears today. And what we're going to do is, you know, we're going to stand because that's the, uh, the policy of the United States government. And then we're going to just kind of check out the uh, national anthem. So would you stand with me? The United States Naval Academy, the United States Air Force Academy, the United States Military Academy at West Point, the United States Coast Guard Academy, 
and accompanied by the United States Army Herald Trumpets. beautiful renditions I think I've ever heard you know we live in a time where everyone's got their own take or their own and I just thought man I kept watching it and I thought wow and what really struck me about this national anthem that we have is that it's very core it's a question and it's the first question of the song it says oh say can you see you know, I've never thought about that like that. Matter of fact, I always thought the last words were play ball, you know? I mean, how many of you just want to say that? Yeah, you know, like, play ball, you get to sit down, you know? I started reading the regulations about what you're supposed to do. There are regulations. You stand with your hand over your heart if you're not in the services. If you're in the services, you salute. As of 2008, retired service members can salute if they choose to. But the rest of us put our hands over our hearts. You know, you take your ball cap off when the American anthem is played, but you put it over your shoulder, because your hand goes over your heart. All these things, and I thought, what is it that we're doing as a nation when we play that song and say those words? And it started to hit me that it was more of this kind of a conversation that's supposed to be happening. We always think it's out there happening, but it's right here, and the question becomes a song of this, oh say, can you see? Why do we stand and look at the flag when the song is sung? Because it's still flying. It's right there. It's at the ball games. It's right there. And in our country, it's all around us. And I know as a guy, right, when the jets fly over our head, we're always like, you see those guys jumping around the field, you know? But there's a reality there that we're being defended, that we're being preserved. 
And so I just wanted to kind of take a minute and realize that about this, that ultimately this psalm becomes a testimony about our country. And the same was true when he wrote the words after he saw the flag. It's just a flag. It's just cloth, but it means something. And the next day when the battle was still on, when the battle hadn't been lost, the flag was there and he was inspired to write the words that somehow, somehow, we have been preserved. And so in this way, I just wanted to remind all of us what we're doing. Maybe next time we sing that song, maybe next time we stand at attention and we're not just kind of talking, we're just paying it, thinking about what it means that when those jets fly, there's still something happening, that the flag is still flying. And this is true for us as a nation by the grace of God. And so I want to say that uh, what does it mean then when we start, because today we're talking about testifying. What does it mean that we would say to one another, do you see it? Can you see it still? Do you still know what's happening here? When we're at the fireworks and we see those, do you know what that's about? Because I can tell you there's times where I forget. Well, today we're going to wrap up our series, Life in Christ, and we're going to talk about what it means to testify, what that looks like in our lives, to proclaim that there's a greater truth happening than we could even realize. And maybe it's just words we've repeatedly, repeatedly said, but they mean something. And so today I'm going to ask you to open your, the Bible with me. But as we open the word, I want to pray one more time to our Father in heaven that uh, he would use his word in our lives today. Father God, we come humbly before you into the word that is revealing the truth of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that today by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would teach us your ways, that we would know more about you and become more like you, and that we could live out this word by following Jesus, our Lord, Savior, and King. That somehow the, the, the words would become, stop being part of a book and start being part of our lives in a real way. And may we be found to always give you praise and always give you glory and always confess your goodness before the whole world for all eternity. The people following Jesus say amen. Amen. So go ahead and open your Bibles. If you brought one today, we're going to be wrapping up here in 1 John. And if you didn't bring one, you can grab one of ours. It's 856, 846, I'm sorry, is the page number of our Bibles and the seats there. It's important to me that, that you would be reading when I think... Um, so if you didn't have one, go ahead and grab one and look at it with me. We've just got a few verses we're going to cover here, and then we're going to talk through it a little bit. And this is all about testifying. This is the very end of this book, 1 John. There's been so much stuff talked about, about what it should look like to have a life in Christ, how this really looks in our life, how we should be different than the world, how we should, and not because we're forcing ourselves, but because we are fundamentally different because of Jesus. We don't try to pretend to be different. We are different because of Jesus. And picking up in verse 6 of the fifth chapter of this letter from John, this is what the word says. This is the one who came by water and blood. By the way, I want to back up one sentence because it says, who is the one? In case you weren't here last week, who is it that overcomes the world? First John asks, only he who believes, only he who believes that Jesus is the son of God right? And this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, 
the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And so here the, the, the word gets into this idea as he's wrapping up all these thoughts about what it looks like to have a life in Christ and, and how we're to live differently because we know Jesus. He says here that there are three that testify, right? Three that testify, and it's the water, the blood, and the spirit. It actually says it right there in verse 7 for sure. For there are three, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And, and I want to talk through just a minute, unpack that a little bit about what that looks like to have these three testi- testimonies about what God did in Jesus Christ, about who God is in Jesus Christ, because it's so important. And, and the first thing that I was thinking about, just think about those three things, right? It's water, blood, and spirit. And I think, what, what do we know about Jesus that, that relates to that experience? And the first is this. I want to remind you that Jesus, this Jesus that we follow, this Jesus that we believe in, that we hang our eternity on, is a man who was born of a woman. That, that the, this first part of the water is there's this real deal birth. That in every way, Jesus was like you and me. And you say, well, Jesus wouldn't be, you know, have a hard time with that or he wouldn't struggle with this. Yeah, in every way we were tempted, he was tempted. He was tested. In every way. The difference is he was sinless, but he was born of water. And so the first I wanted to remind you, it, we're going to walk through these a few times, this, this water and this blood and this spirit, but the first is that he was born of a woman. He was born fully man. And the second is that in this blood that, that Jesus died. And that's a very human experience. You know, I heard somebody say recently that the probability of death for every person is 100%. And I only say that because some of us act like we're never going to die. This is not me, you know. Not going to happen. Probability of death for every human being that's breathing air right now is 100%. Everybody's going to die. And, and, and therefore, and I say that because when Jesus shed his blood, he died. He was dead. And so this is a very human experience. So if you didn't believe the birth of Jesus was human, and you had people who were, who were following Jesus around and going, oh, I, I'm not sure what he is. I'm not sure who he is. I can tell you when he was on the cross and he was bleeding out on the cross, they saw who he was. And most of them, I think all of them, the word says, walked away. Even those who had been pouring himself into walked away from Jesus on the cross. It's far too human, Jesus far too much like us. 100% probability of death. So you have the water birth, then you have the, the, the blood shed on the cross and death that leads to death, right? And then the third thing you have is the spirit that testifies. I want to remind you that the miraculous thing of Jesus wasn't only that he was born, wasn't only that he lived, wasn't only that he died, but the thing that really turned everything around for all the non-believers and believers alike was that he was raised to new life. I don't know what the experience was like for Jesus being resurrected. I know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out and said, if there's any other way this could happen, this peace with God can happen, make that happen, Father, but do your will. And the Father's will was to crush his son, which I can't comprehend. I don't know what it's going to be like for the believers to have that new life after our last breath. But I can tell you I've been there for a new life in birth 
and it's extraordinary. And so when I think about Jesus, he was born of a woman, he died on a cross, and he was dead in the tomb. Three days, he's laying there, and then all of a sudden, pneuma, <gasps> we talked about that, right? Pneumatic tires, air, wind, new breath. And he began to walk around. Not just that, he began to eat and drink and hang out with the same people. And they're going, you were dead. And he's like, I know, you know. And God's doing the same thing for everybody because you have eternal life. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Eternal life in Jesus Christ. So we have the birth, the death, and the resurrection. Three testimonies of Jesus. Water, blood, spirit. There's more. That's the earthly life of Jesus. I want to remind you of some of the Old Testament teachings about Yahweh, the God of creation. This is, this is God. God is God. There's no differences. And so I want to remind you that in the First Testament, there's experiences of water, right? What was the first great I don't know, story in the Bible besides the creation narrative? Do you remember? The flood, that's right. God used water and he just wiped the slate clean with, you know, just sin. He just wiped that with a big flood. And then we have this time in, in, in uh, Israel's history where there's these sacrifices at the temple. And, and, and they're actually, if you've ever studied it, they say that when you were coming up to the temple mountain for sacrifice, when you were coming up with your, with your uh, birds to be sacrificed to your goat or your sheep or your bull or whatever it was, that they had to build special troughs because the blood was just pouring out of the temple, you understand? And so there's this, there's this whole experience of, of being delivered. I want to remind you too that in the First Testament, it talks about the Exodus story and the people were delivered through water. Remember that? On both sides. And then God used the water then to wipe out Pharaoh's army at the same time. The same water that delivered some people from, from uh, destruction was the destruction of others. I want you to see that. And so you have water in the First Testament, and you have blood in the First Testament, and then in Christ we have the final sacrifice, and we have this new life. But I want to remind you that the Spirit of God did not begin, did not begin with Jesus, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit were, are eternal, and they always existed. And you can read in the First Testament how the wind would sweep across the plains, and you can just know that, that you know, hovering over the waters, the Spirit was there. And so again, you have water, and you have blood, and you have Spirit testifying, testifying about Yahweh. In Jesus' earthly ministry, I want to remind us that his first act, he lived 30-ish years before he goes out to John the Baptist and asks to be baptized. When he shows up, John says, I'm not worthy to touch your sandals. And Jesus says, this is to, to be done so we can fulfill the scriptures. And in that moment, John the Baptist takes Jesus, our Lord, Savior, Messiah, and he immerses him in the water. And, in, and one gospel says, when he comes up, the heaven parts and God speaks and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And in that moment, you have the baptism of Christ in his earthly ministry. And I've talked to you about baptism before here. It's one of the things that we still practice today. And it's just water. And it's just getting dipped back. But it's so much more because of Jesus' testimony to us in his own ministry. This was the beginning of his earthly ministry to us. And so we have Jesus coming out and being baptized and then going out and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And he proclaims it for three, about three years. 
And the end of Jesus' proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God being near and even present here now with you, of himself being the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the, the testimony that came before, he gives his life on the cross. And that same blood that was human, that was shed in that very human way of dying, of not being dignified, it wasn't even a dignified death. Only criminals died this way. That same blood was the blood of God. That was his ministry to us. That was being poured out for us. And so we have the testimony of the water of Jesus' baptism and the sacrifice of his blood on the cross. And then you'll remember whenever he is resurrected and he has that new life, he shows up to the disciples in the small room and the word says that he breathed on them and said, receive my spirit. And then, and everyone was filled with the spirit of God. So you have this testimony of Jesus' earthly ministry, his baptism, his sacrifice on the cross, right? We just talked about that in, in 1 John. And then his resurrection and breathing out new life on his people. There's another way to look at this. So we've got a few things. I want you to see that this is a big deal, that these three testify, these three testify, these three testify to you and to me still today. On the cross of Jesus, these three are present in the same way. And I want to read it with you. Instead of flipping there, I'm going to pull it up here on the screen. This is from the Gospel of John. And I want to remind you again, the Gospel of John was written so that you might believe. That's what John says in the Gospel, the good news of Jesus. He says, I wrote these words down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then in 1 John, he writes, I wrote these things that you might know who believe that you have eternal life. That those of you who've accepted Jesus as Savior know what you have in him. And so this is the Gospel of John. I want to read it with you, 19. We're going to, verse 30. You can read the whole thing. There's nothing in there. There's no secret hidden between 30 and 33. But I want you to see the three testimonies present in the cross of Christ. This is what the word says. When he had received, that's Jesus, the drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. When they then came, this is in 33, when they came to Jesus and they found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Because you'll remember that there were three crucified with him that day. And the other two, they broke their legs because they were not dead. But Jesus had died early. He gave up his spirit. So his spirit is gone. And they come to him. They don't break his legs. But you know what's coming next. Some of you know what's coming next. Instead, one of the soldiers took a spear, right? Right? And he stuck it through the side of Jesus right here. He stuck it up in his side. And suddenly, a flow of blood and water came out. And I want you to see, and I know some of us have, have, have seen de depictions of this. I don't think we'll ever fully understand what this looked like to be there present with, with Jesus. I think in some ways, it would be completely ordinary looking. The soldier did it and, went, and kind of said, yeah, he's dead. When that happens, the guy's dead. But there was something eternal that happened in that moment whenever there was no more life in Jesus, whenever the blood came out and the water came out of his side, they testified to what's happening here. The Son of God has been slain for sinners. 
like you and like me. Wait a minute. The Son of God was slain by sinners like you and like me. You know, one of the biggest things that I find when I look at the cross of Christ isn't that they put them there, that they put him there, but that I put him there. That I would have been there saying, crucify him, crucify him. God, forgive me. And so in this flow of water and of blood from the side of Jesus, we find testimony of the eternal salvation of God through the cross of Christ. And again, you see the spirit and the blood and the water testify. This is the final of that verse. Read what it says. The man who saw it, who saw this blood and water flow, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also would believe the water, the blood, and the spirit of Christ testify. And the last way I want to look at this is this way here. In our own lives, these testify, these three We talked about the normative existence of a follower of Jesus. And I want to explain that baptism, if you're a believer in Jesus, is a normative practice. If there's no other reason to do it, you should do it because Jesus did it. It's just water and it's just being dipped in a pool and yet it's so much more. And, And my experience has been, and I've seen it in others' lives, that in this act of public confession, in this act of proclaiming whose they are, about who who has a stake in their life, things change and ministry begins. And so in this act of being baptized in the water, we testify of Christ. And then the calling that we follow in our lives sometimes requires us to give things up. And that becomes our blood and our sweat and our tears for the gospel of Jesus that we would pour out so that others might believe, just like John said in his gospel. And so we have in our own lives the baptism. But even something else that we we can remember is that we have communion. We do it once a month here at Family, and that's just an arbitrary selection. We could do it every week. We could do it every day. Because every time we receive the sacrament of communion, we remember Jesus. You know, Chris and I were having a meal the other night, just an ordinary meal, just the two of us, nobody was around. And it really struck me in the moment again to remember the words of Christ. That he said, this bread is my body broken for you. I want to say that every time we break bread, every time we share a cup with a friend, we should remember that Jesus died for us to have this, to be in a relationship like that. And so we have this, first we have our baptism, and then we have this communion. I'm not talking about order here. I'm just talking about experiences we have. And then the third is this Holy Spirit, this pneuma. We sang the song earlier, it says, untamable, uncontrollable. God is God and we are not. And I want to say that when you follow the living God, he sweeps through your life like fire. And there are times where you, you can relent, you can kind of try to put it out and dig a fire stop around it. But if God's going to have his way, he's going to have his way. And so in this living, breathing relationship with the God who made you, we begin to burn with passion for the God of our hearts. And we begin to pursue him with everything we have, and it can't be stopped. You know, fire is a crazy thing because it's a small thing that can be easily put out, but it can also just burn down a whole forest. And this is the God we follow. And I want to let you know that if you think you're following a God that's about, you know, going to make you happy or, or give you everything you've always wanted in life, I'm not sure because God has a plan for us that we don't even understand. 
but I want you to know that the God that we follow is good. And this Holy Spirit that he breathes over us, that he is just dying to infuse in our lungs, will transform your life. I pray that you know that today, the baptism of Christ, communion with Christ, and the Holy Spirit of Christ breathed into you. And all these testify, and here becomes our testimony for the day, right, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in Jesus. That's going to come up later in the text, but I want you to hear it now. The testimony of the three, water, blood, and spirit, is that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in Christ. Let's read on. Picking up in verse 9. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has a testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has believed the testimony, he has not believed the testimony of God that God has given about his son. That's a mouthful right there. So we accept men's testimony, and, and I, I want to think about, again, this idea of testifying and what it looks like. You know, if, if something's happened and you want some proof, you say, tell me your side of the story, and tell me your side of the story. And after we hear these sides, we kind of make that into uh, uh, something that we can believe or not believe. And we start to kind of build a case in our minds, like, yeah, that's pretty believable, right? And, and I'm not sure in your life who you're listening to, but uh, the testimony of God is greater, I want to back up one second because I've, I've skipped something here that I want to talk about. Yeah, in verse 7, look at verse 7, or verse 8 with me. The spirit, the water, and the blood. And it says this, the three are in agreement. And I, I want to point out one quick thing before we move on to our testimony here, that these three are one. That, that all these testimonies that we have of Christ, that all the First Testament revelations about Jesus coming, the Messiah coming, all these things that Jesus did in his earthly ministries, it's all one testimony. I only say that because I was disheartened. I thought when it said the three are in agreement, there's a Greek word for agreement. It means we're the same, you know. We agree with God when we confess our sins. We say we agree that we're a sinner, God. And, and he, he knows that already. But this word agreement actually isn't agreement at all. The way it should read is the three are one. These three are one. It's the same exact thing. There is one testimony about Christ, one spirit that's testifying. And I want you to understand that, 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 that um, it's exactly the same. That if you think, boy, these are really similar, aren't they? No, it's exactly the same. The testimony is the same. As a matter of fact, in my Bible, I crossed out agreement and put one right over top of it, that these three are one testimony. And that testimony is that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in Jesus. It's coming up in a minute, right? And so now we find that we, we, we live our lives in a way that we want to hear some people's testimony about something before we believe it. You know, how good is this product, or, or what, what should I do tonight, or is this going to be fun or not fun, or, you know, uh, even sometimes should I believe in Jesus or not? We try to convince one another, you know. Uh, I know some of you have talked about trying to convince others, and I can tell you that when I was a non-believer, a lot of people tried to convince me of my faith. But the truth is that God has testified about Jesus and what the word says, it says that God's testimony is greater because it's a testimony of God. And what's funny about that sentence is you read that and you go like, 
Well, duh, <laughs> you know, God's testimony is greater than man's. In other words, if you're in a court of law and people are testifying and God takes a stand, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're going to go, what he said, you know? Here's the problem. Read what John says, that so many who would believe, say that they agree with God, would not agree with what he has said about his son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Uh, I'm sorry, we accept men's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he has given about his son, right? And so we believe it because God said it. And um, I just want to take a minute and say this to you, that if, if you're here, you know, and, and you've been, like me, you know, for a long time, you've been thinking, like, everybody wants me to be a Christian or uh, my mom be happy. That's probably actually not true, by the way. I thought that would be the case, you know, um, my wife will be happy. That's not necessarily true, by the way. Uh, if, if you think that, that others are trying to convince you to believe, I want you just to dismiss all that. I just want you to let all that go. Because the God of everything is confessing about his son. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the creation we live in. It's in everything that we do and everything that we see. And this gospel of Jesus is different than anything else out there. And, and as much as we want you to believe, I can tell you that God, God is trying to convince you himself. And so I want you to be listening for his voice. I want you to talk to God about your non-belief, your struggles and your faith. I want you to be able to confess openly. We're going to talk a minute about confidence before him. I want you to be able to confess openly the areas that you're really, really struggling in because he already knows. And let the God who made you love you into his kingdom. Now, I'm not saying we don't have a part because the next thing you see here in verse 10, it says, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his own heart. That means if you're a believer, you are testifying to Jesus. You are testifying to the truth of the gospel. And so we do have that to do, but our job is not to save people. Our job is to confess the truth of Christ in the world, and God is saving people through Jesus. And so we can trust him with that, but in our hearts, we have the testimony of God. Every believer, it says, each one has a testimony in his heart. And then here we're going to kind of kick into the end here, right? And that's this, your eternal life. Read with me in verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Right? I'll read it again. And this is the testimony. What the Spirit and the water and the blood have been testifying to is that God has given us, that's a fact, has given us life eternal. And this life is in his Son, who we know is Jesus, the Christ. And it goes on in verse 12, and it says this, whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And that's the simple way that John wraps up these thoughts on the confession, the testimony of God in Jesus Christ. I want to remind you that this is a statement that says that if you believe, if you know, if you, what does it say? Have the Son. 
If you have the Son, you have life. It literally means to hold on to it with your hand. It means if you're gripping the Savior, it means if you know Him, if you're in a relationship with Him, you have life in Christ. And when you don't have Him, you don't have life. It doesn't exist without Jesus. In verse 13, I write these things so that you who believe, it's very consistent, in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And here we go. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. You understand what I'm saying? So in this relationship to Jesus, you have everything you need for life. You have life, the only real source of life that there is, and, and you hold on to that, and then everything you ask is granted in his will. And we can trust him with that. So he says, I've written so that you might know. And again here, I was excited because I know some Greek. I'm like, oh, it's gnosko. And I looked it up. It's not gnosko. It means making your dwelling. It means you build your house in Jesus. It, you know, there's a place in the, in the gospel where it says, uh, the foolish man built his house on, on sand and the wise built his house on a rock. And it means that you just you stake your claim with Jesus. You live and you breathe and you exist in him. You dwell in him. You put your curtains up in Jesus. You do everything in Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection. And in this confession, you find eternal life. It says, I wrote this so that you might make your house, make your home in Jesus and have eternal life. I want to wrap up with this one thought because he's going to go on here and you can read it on your own. He's going to go on after verse 16. We're not going to read it today. But he says, there's one thing you ought not to pray for. He says, it's the sin that leads to death. And I think, man, what is that? You know, I could pray about anything, right? There is one sin that leads to death, and that's calling God a liar. Back in verse 10, we saw it. Anyone who does not believe God has called God a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. You know, the problem that we have, and, you know, praise God that I came to the faith. The problem that I had so long wasn't with people that I didn't want to believe in Jesus. It's with God who is trying to tell me through his people and through everything else in my life, listen, I died for you to have peace. I died. And my problem wasn't with them. It was with him. That's why I would encourage you to take it right to him. All sin requires repentance, Right? That's the word says, if you are sinning, you repent. It means you stop doing, you turn and you, and you pray to receive forgiveness and you have new life and you have the spirit leading you. But here's the truth. If you are not believing God's testimony, you are living a, lie, a life with no repentance. And that is unforgivable. The truth that John so clearly articulates is that God is love that we all know. But God is just and on the day, that day, we'll know if we had the Son or not. We'll know when we stand before God. And we'll know that this God that was following us around, telling us, whispering, I made you, I know you, I love you, I died for you, We'll know 
but that God is no liar. And I pray that day that you have Jesus. Pray with me if you would. Father, today we come into your holiness, your presence. We trust you with our souls. We know that you sent Jesus and you testify about him. We've heard your word today that says all the ways you've been revealing yourself to us. I pray, I pray today that the spirit in us that would call you a liar, the spirit in us that would like to thwart our development, our coming to Christ would be removed. I pray that our hard hearts would soften toward the gospel of peace. I pray, Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to follow you. And Lord, today as we come together as a body of believers, many of us confess you and yet we aren't finished and we're following after you, but many of us don't even know how much you gave for us. And so today, Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you reveal it in every heart and every mind and every eye and every ear, the love, the great love you've shown in Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And I don't know what that next step is, Father, for every person, but you do. And I pray that you would take that task up personally with each one of us and that we would follow you as the God who is living and not dead. We would know you as the one who is leading and directing our steps every day. We thank you so much for your word, for this time that we've had to share and reflect on it. We pray that you would bring it out in our lives. Help us to live it honestly. And we just give you praise and glory today and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen.